we truly believe that pro-immigrant policies are pro-American policies. It's a way to lift the floor for all communities. The Trump era came about because we don't have enough political power, particularly among communities of color, and particularly for low-income immigrant communities. And so engaging in movement and power building, changing hearts and minds, and advancing progressive laws and policies at the federal, state, and local level is the core of what we do. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Marielena Incapia, is an important progressive leader and the executive director of the National Immigration Law Center, which is one of the leading organizations in the United States dedicated to defending and advancing the rights of immigrants with low income. The demonization of immigrants is a central part of the Trumpist political strategy, and the NILC plays a key role in defending our democracy by blunting those attacks and pushing to make our country a more welcoming place for immigrants. I really enjoyed getting to know Marielena, and you will too. So first my sponsor, then my interview with Marielena in Capia with Nilk. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Absolutely, sure. So first of all, Nathaniel, thank you so much for the invitation. Um, my name is Maria Elena Incapie. I am the executive director of the National Immigration Law Center and the NILC Immigrant Justice Fund, which is our C4 sister organization. And I am an immigrant from Colombia, from Medellin, Colombia. My family immigrated when I was three years old. I'm the youngest of 10, a uh, very traditional Colombian family. And um, we immigrated in the 1970s as a result of my father had been recruited first to work in the textile factories of Rhode Island. And that was a time that the immigration laws were really different. Like my family is one of the families that benefited from the civil rights movement. The civil rights movement in part uh, was responsible for national origin quotas being removed from our immigration laws in 1965. And that opened the doors for much greater diversity in our country. Because we were a much more welcoming nation, he was able to petition for us. Um, Eventually a brother and a sister came, then my mother and six of us arrived later in the 70s. And we grew up in a working class community in Central Falls, Rhode Island. Factories were the main source of work. My father had a second grade education. My mother had a fifth grade education. Um, They were still able to raise 10 children and really fulfill their dream as parents to give us a better life and to give us greater opportunities than they had in Colombia, particularly because the time that we immigrated was the beginning of the civil war in Colombia as well. And so their dream, like millions of immigrants and refugees, throughout our history was to give 
my brothers and sisters and me a better life. And they absolutely were able to do that. Education, they understood, even though they didn't have formal education, that education was an equalizer. And that was a pathway out of poverty for my family. And so today I get the great honor of being the executive director of an organization that is fighting to defend our constitution, that is fighting to ensure that the United States can once again be that beacon of hope, a welcoming nation that allows people to fulfill their full potential, like my brothers and sisters and I have done. As many times as I've sort of heard that immigrant story, and it's in my family also, I still kind of get goosebumps about it. There's something about the system working and rewarding the right kinds of actions and efforts that is wonderful about this country. Yeah, it it really is, right? This is this, I I call it a myth that we are a nation of immigrants because the fact is that we're not. We're a nation that was built on racialized violence of Native Americans, of enslaved Africans. Um, And yet, unless you are a, a Native American or descendant of slaves in this country, we all are immigrants. We all have that immigrant story. And yet today, my parents would not be would not be allowed to immigrate today, right? Um, Especially under the Trump era laws that we still have in place today. Um, We're in such a different place as a nation um, at a time when we have historically been that beacon of hope, a welcoming light in the the world. Um, We're at such great risk of losing that place. I'm still very hopeful. I'm an optimist at heart. (laughs) I wouldn't be able to do this work if I wasn't, but I do believe that we can get back to that place again. I mean, it does seem like we go through long waves of our kind of collective attitude towards immigration. We have periods like the 1920s, a a lot of reaction against uh, the immigrants around the turn of the century. And again, recently, what's your sense of what creates the sort of liberalization and backlash wave? In large part, Nathaniel, right, it's this reminder that our immigration laws are, from the very beginning, have been shaped by race and class. So, you know, depending on what is happening in the country and in the world, our immigration laws have responded to that very much much from a racialized perspective. I mean, if we even think about um, the first uh, Naturalization Act of 1790 that created the term of citizenship, of who got to be a citizen, that was limited to free white persons, which in essence meant free white men who are property owners. Everyone else was not eligible to become a U.S. citizen. And so I always think about that because that immediately meant, for example, that a lot of people of Asian descent were excluded and unable to become citizens. Anybody who was an indentured servant um, was not. Obviously, anybody who was Black was not. Native Americans were not um, considered citizens at the time. And Immigration has been used very successfully as a weapon and to divide our nation. Again, despite the fact that we claim to be a nation of immigrants, there have always been forces that weaponize immigration and immigrants. And it's happened to so many different nationalities, right? Whether you're Irish American, whether you are Polish American, Italian American, obviously we see it today playing out with Black immigrants, with Latinos, with Asian Pacific Islanders. And a lot of times it's in response to the economy as well, right? 
in times of scarcity, in times of high levels of unemployment, or in times of war, that fear-mongering that is often so much done, and I would say primarily by people with white nationalist views of our world and a protectionism of quote-unquote American jobs, is what often results to that sense of laws, immigration laws and policies and sentiments that exclude people while ignoring who we've been as a country and what we have done as a nation as well to the very people whose land we actually live on today. When my older daughter was in high school, my wife is Chinese American. My older daughter wrote a paper on 19th century immigration, learned about the Chinese Exclusion Act. It's very weird to like live in a progressive family and bubble where we think about immigrants and race and class in one way and then and kind of have to face as a young person these attitudes that are endemic in the country. And in your position, you're contending with what is really taking place. So you've talked a little bit about like where where we come from. What what is the state of things now? Trump weaponized the immigration thing. He scared people when he ran the first time about people coming over the border. He saw a lot of political fruit in bringing fear into the equation and and playing that card. Then there were a lot of changes to policy. It wasn't perfect before Trump. It was a long way from that. Uh, Talk about like what Trump did and what's changing now and what needs to change more. Trump didn't happen overnight, right? There was a long, long history of what produced Trump and Trumpism in our nation. And one of the things that Trump was very um, successful at is that he basically waged war, really an all-out war on immigrant communities and on our democracy. Trump, Stephen Miller, Steve Bannon, right? When you think about particularly Steve Bannon, who actually has taken these same views, anti-immigrant agenda to other parts of the world, This is a larger agenda than just being anti-immigrant. You know, I've argued from the very beginning of the Trump era is that they actually understood that an anti-immigrant agenda was an anti-democracy agenda. It was their way to chip away at democracy. It was their way to use fear and instilling fear in immigrant communities, not just undocumented immigrants who that was a lot of what the rhetoric was about, but actually they were chipping away most of the policies that they put in place during the last administration were actually chipping away at legal immigration. If you actually looked at what those policies achieved and what they were trying to do was to slow down the demographic shift, to uh, block black and brown people from becoming voters, of blocking immigrants who are currently here from becoming future citizens and thereby voters. I think a lot of people understand Trump is an anti-immigrant administration, but actually I truly believe that that was part of a larger agenda, a larger blueprint that takes us to the brink of authoritarianism, that really takes us to a country that was at risk or may still be at risk of becoming governed by minority group of white people, um, and, and particularly the, the Republican Party that seems to have doubled down and wanting to be the Trump party or the party of Trump uh, views. And so, you know, we experience a lot of harm uh, 
chilling effect, again, on not just undocumented immigrants, but many people who had green cards, who were permanent residents, who were longtime citizens, who were afraid to even seek chemotherapy, who were afraid of seeking mental health supports for their teenagers who were on the brink of committing suicide. The level of fear that people were really paralyzed with under had such a long-term trauma um, on immigrant communities, and I would say our collective trauma as a nation as well. Fortunately, we experienced also the growth, the historic number of voters who came out against Trump at, in November of 2020 and then again in January. And that didn't happen again in a vacuum. When we look at the states of Arizona and Georgia in particular, and go back a decade ago, a decade ago, we saw those states, again, in the midst of leading the way on an anti-immigrant agenda at the state level. Arizona had passed SB 1070, the racial profile profiling law or show me your papers law. Georgia had a very similar draconian anti-immigrant law. And we sued those states. Like part of our strategy at the National Immigration Law Center was like, let's sue every single one of those states, which we sued Arizona, Utah, Indiana, Georgia, South Carolina. And we sued successfully with a broad coalition of civil rights laws, but we knew that that wasn't sufficient. We knew that what we were up against was a narrative war that was really trying to criminalize and dehumanize immigrants so that there was this backlash that created the space for Trump. And so when you fast forward a decade later, the level of organizing that happened in states like Arizona and Georgia is what helped then to deliver the victories for Democrats in in 2020 um, and in January of 2021, Stacey Abrams, I think of particularly when she was in the House in Georgia, she literally would have immigrant constituents who were calling her and the, the fear that people in Georgia had about the bill in Georgia, SB 87 or HR 87, I think. And, uh, you know, I remember Stacey calling me, you know, directly to find out what can we do? What are the things that we can be doing to protecting Georgia residents? And so the coalition of black and brown communities uniting to organize over the last decade and then to deliver Democrats this governing trifecta that they now have in the Senate, in the House and in the White House really has changed the path of our nation. What that means under the Biden administration is that it's a stark difference, right? We we see a, a president and Vice President Harris who um, have a different vision for our country, really, who see immigrants as a strength to our nation, who have talked about really regaining that footing in the world of being, once again, a welcoming nation, that beacon of hope, that on the first day, the very first thing that President Biden did was announce a series of executive orders that would undo the harm from the Trump era. And that was everything from making sure that he sent a bill to Congress that created a path to citizenship for the 11 million family community members we have in this country that are citizens in waiting, but yet have not been recognized by the law. He also announced the effort of protecting immigrant youth with DACA, which is this temporary protection from deportation for young immigrants who've grown up in our nation, who call this country home. They know no other home. They're Americans at heart, but are missing that piece of paper that my family and I had when we came. So there were a number of executive orders that uh, President Biden announced and we've been starting to feel that hope of what's possible under the current administration, while at the state level, we've made 
quite a lot of progress in actually achieving change, right? Not just the promises that we're hearing and the change in tone from the federal government, but actually at the state level, achieving quite a bit of significant policy changes that really allow immigrants to be included for all residents at the state level to feel that they uh, have a more healthy and welcoming community that they can be a part of. When one listens to the debate about immigration in Europe, where there's a lot of Islamic immigrants, in the U.S., where we have a lot of people coming from Mexico, the caricature you might get from the right of our side is uh, no limit to immigration, no regulation around it. What is your view about the end goal? What do you want to see like in the future as the policy of the United States? Yeah, you know, I think one of the reasons that I was so hopeful, Nathaniel, about the current administration is that President Biden really began with this notion of, first, you start from the place of recognizing the humanity of immigrants, right? And recognizing that um, we do have a history of welcoming refugees and immigrants, like my family, right? Like your family. You know, part of it is we have an immigration system that is so dysfunctional. We're actually operating on an immigration system from the 1980s when the world has changed dramatically in the last 35 years. Under President Reagan was the last time we had a significant change reform to our immigration system. We have to first start by fixing the system itself that we currently have. One of the things that the Trump administration did that unfortunately the Biden administration inherited was a system that was completely gutted. We talk about being a nation, especially the Republicans talk about being a nation where we're a part of the rule of law. The majority of undocumented immigrants have been here for over a decade. They're paying taxes. Many of them are small business owners, homeowners. They have U.S. citizen children. And yet we're saying Congress is so dysfunctional. We're going to keep you in this Um, marginal status, but yet we're going to require you to pay taxes. And in fact, the IRS provides an individual tax ID number to undocumented immigrants to pay taxes. They're required to pay taxes, even though the other part of the government says you're not here lawfully and you're not supposed to be working. So it's this hypocrisy that even the federal government itself has done a workaround. And so first and foremost, we must recognize people, right? That is like, or honoring the many people in this moment, for example, who are essential workers, right? In the, in the pandemic, I think the majority of Americans started recognizing, becoming more aware of how interdependent we all are, right? That our collective health and well-being requires all of us to be healthy and well. We all need access to COVID testing. We all, maybe not all of us agree, but we all should be vaccinated, right? We should have access to health care. And the fact is that so many people that were invisible to us before, right? Predominantly low-wage black and brown workers, 70% of whom undocumented workers work in those essential industries, whether it is you know, the folks who are in working in the poultry plants, meatpacking plants, farm workers, the people who are taking care of our children, who are taking care of our sick, who are our educators. I mean, 70% of undocumented immigrants work in one of these essential industries that have been critical to us staying afloat as a country, that have been critical to helping us even emerge out of this pandemic as we're still, you know, with Omicron still raging. And so first and foremost, we have to recognize these individuals as essential to who we are as a nation and provide them with that path 
to citizenship. And Congress has an opportunity to do that right now. As part of the Build Back Better framework, it has a provision to include a path to citizenship for as many of the 11 million as possible in there. And yet, as, as we all know, the Build Back Better framework, which is would be a significant investment in our social infrastructure, is stalled in Congress right now. We at the National Immigration Law Center are still hopeful that we'll be able to get that through. Um, but that would be the first piece. Second is we have to take a more global perspective about immigrants. Immigration is not a domestic policy issue. Immigration is actually a global phenomenon Since the beginning of time, men and women have been migrating and we will continue to migrate. And so, you know, we at the National Immigration Law Center co-led a process during the Trump era with about 50 other leaders across the country to really reimagine what would an immigrant justice system look like. And part of what we gave birth to was something we call the five freedoms. And first is like really thinking about the freedom to stay. And that is both about the freedom for, for example, the 11 million people to be able to stay here, but it's also about the freedom for people to stay in their homeland, right? The freedom for people to not be forced to migrate. What if we as a country viewed our economic and foreign policy laws from the lens of like, how do we ensure this does not result in forced migration? How do we create economic and educational opportunities in Central America, for example, right now? How do we work with civil society organizations in Central America to end the amount of femicide, right, female-focused murders and kidnappings and rapes that are happening, that is the push factor. That is why we see so many mothers and young girls leaving the Northern Triangle and walking, right, engaging in a perilous journey to the United States for 25, 30 days to get to the border of the United States to seek safety, There's something wrong with a society when that is happening. And so the answer is not let's shut down the border or open the border. The answer is let's work throughout the Western Hemisphere, for example. So there's a piece of like the freedom to stay. There is also the freedom to move. Like we should recognize that people will have to move. And whether that's because of climate change, which is one of the major drivers of migration now, or whether people are moving for love or people are moving to pursue dreams. Like we actually need an orderly legal system so that people have a way to apply. So many people on the right say, oh, well, people should just get in line. There actually is no line to get into. I mean, that is the problem. The system is so dysfunctional and archaic, that there is no legal way for people to come to the United States in this moment. Or if there is, you're waiting in some instances 20, 25 years to be reunited with family members. And so those are some of the things that I would point to initially as really critical of both recognizing the humanity and the dignity of the people who are here, who are part of our families and our communities through a pathway to citizenship, having an orderly system that everyone knows, both people who are in the United States and people outside of the U.S. about how do you migrate to the United States? And then most importantly, also ensuring that people have the freedom to remain in their home country, right? And that we as a country have actually a long history, whether it's military intervention, whether it's other policies like NAFTA, for example, that actually create a lot of the poverty that resulted in people migrating in search for work. It's a much more global and comprehensive view of how do we um, look at both migrants and migration in the world at this time. How do you locate your enterprise now in the progressive ecosystem? What is the core thing that you are responsible for? 
Absolutely. So the National Immigration Law Center was founded in 1979, and we actually started as a project of the Legal Aid um, Foundation of Los Angeles, right? So we come at immigration and immigrants really from an anti-poverty lens, and our focus, our mission is on low-income immigrants, so working at that intersection of race, immigration status, and class. And our added value to both the movement and to the country really is, you know, which is one of the reasons I feel so honored to have been um, at the helm of the organization for the last couple last couple of decades is it's basically so that low-income immigrant families like my family have the opportunity to thrive in this nation. We believe that everyone, regardless of where you were born or how much money you have, should have the ability, should have that freedom to thrive and that we focus on the laws and policies, both at the federal and state and local level, that impact immigrants. So less about immigration status, although obviously we're fighting for a path to citizenship, for example, we played a critical role supporting and working beside immigrant youth leaders to get DACA announced under President Obama. So access to status is a part of that, but we're actually taking a more holistic view of what do low-income immigrant families need to thrive. They need access to health care and safety net programs. They need access to workers' rights. They need access to justice. And so we are a national organization with very, very close partnerships throughout the states and localities, um, advancing policy priorities, um, again, both at the federal, state and local level, and really, um, again, working to both challenge anti-immigrant laws in the courts like Arizona or Georgia's anti-immigrant laws, but also working with partners, both policymakers and others to enact pro-immigrant policies. We truly believe that pro-immigrant policies are pro-American policies. It's a way to lift the floor for all communities. Lastly, I'll say that in addition to the law and policy, we have two additional levers of change. We believe that we can win all of the court cases. We can pass the greatest laws at the federal, state, and local level. But at the end of the day, the transformative vision that we have for our country, which is a, a country that is inclusive, that is grounded in racial, economic, and gender justice and equity, we actually need to change hearts and minds. So engaging in narrative and culture change and also movement building um, becomes really critical because the Trump era came about because we don't have enough political power, particularly among communities of color and particularly for low-income immigrant communities. And so engaging in movement and power building, changing hearts and minds, and advancing progressive laws and policies at the federal, state, and local level is the core of what we do. How much did the Trump appointees for judges and justices affect the, the field for you to win these kind of cases that you bring? Yeah, you know, what's really interesting about that, Nathaniel, is that when you have a president like Trump who believed he was above the law and didn't have to follow the law, then actually we were able to challenge laws, even having Republican judges who saw, wait, this is too far. Whether that was initially with the Muslim and African bans, for example, with his efforts to um, end DACA on public charge, which was this wealth test that the Trump administration put in place, we were successfully able to block most of Trump's worst draconian policies throughout those years. What I will say has was deeply concerning, especially as a lawyer, is when you look at the number of judges that he appointed for the long term, right, of the impact it has on all of our lives from a civil rights perspective, from fairness, etc., um, it is deeply concerning. The flip of that, fortunately, is that we are seeing President Biden moving at equally record and actually 
even faster than the Trump administration did to appoint progressive judges at all levels of the federal court system that actually are more representative of America, of who we are as a nation. And so that has been very heartening as a lawyer to see the balancing happening. And we really hope that President Biden continues down that path. And of course, he now has an opportunity, this historic opportunity to uh, nominate the first African-American female judge to the Supreme Court, which would be amazing. What would it mean if he gets a second term and maybe understands the system a little bit better and takes out some of the mistakes that he made? And I mean, everyone I talk to in different areas, whether environment or immigration, says there were so many blunders that they we were able to stop them. But another four years or DeSantis for eight years or whatever terrible possibility might be in front of us if we're not careful what would that do to your part of the world? Look, I think that it's not even so much about what it would do to immigrants and to the fight for immigrant justice. Frankly, it's really what it would do to our democracy, right? We are experiencing an existential threat to who we are and the project of America, right? The possibility of this young democracy that we have. And as I shared earlier, I very much see the anti-immigrant agenda as an anti-democracy agenda. I mean, one of the things that's important to, to think back at just a couple of other examples that are not Trump related, but the real ID, which almost everybody in the country now understands and experiences, you know, the real ID was actually a bill that was introduced by Representative Sensenbrenner shortly after 9-11, which was aimed at blocking undocumented immigrants from having access to driver's licenses because they could potentially hijack a plane. I mean, that was literally the rhetoric and the rationale behind the Real ID law. And I remember as an organization, we kept saying to people, like, actually, most undocumented immigrants don't have, didn't have access at that time, especially didn't have access to driver's licenses. So this actually wasn't about undocumented immigrants. This was actually about keeping poor people, black and brown people, people in rural communities, limiting their ability to get these driver's licenses that were going to also have um, real threats to our civil liberties in terms of the access to databases that all these databases would have to be talking to each other, both from State Department of Motor Vehicles, federal government agencies, et cetera. That's one example where, again, it was an anti-immigrant bill, but actually the impact on, on all citizens in terms of the Real ID has been really great. And you see why in 2022, we still don't have the Real ID fully implemented because of how difficult it's been. And then similarly, you have voter ID laws. So many of the voter ID laws at the state level started with an effort to block undocumented immigrants from voting with these theories and myths about undocumented immigrants were illegally voting in our in our elections. When again, you know, if most undocumented immigrants are afraid to even go to drive down the street to take their child to the emergency room, they're not going to vote in our in our elections, right? Like that that has always been just such a myth, but that was used to pass these voter ID laws were actually meant to suppress the vote, particularly the black and brown vote. What's at risk with a Trump or DeSantis um, administration is a, a, a greater risk to our democracy, which is why we believe that centering immigrants in that broader fight for democracy is really critical to all of our communities really emerging stronger as a nation and beating back those efforts, both at the federal level, but also at the state and local level. You're clearly now a very experienced 
lawyer who's been running an organization in the middle of this for a long time, but you weren't always. Could you talk about your educational path, about how you came to join your your organization, how you moved up within it at, to become executive director? Like, Just talk a little bit about your career over time, because I feel like young people who might care about immigration don't realize how many options there are to build a career among these groups that do good things across our system. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's a great question because my journey is different than I think a lot of people assume, right? I grew up again in a working class family. We didn't know any lawyers. Um, And so going to law school, becoming a lawyer was not at all in my mindset when I was growing up. I actually wanted to be a DEA agent. (laughs) And in part, it's because I grew up in the 1980s in Rhode Island with a lot of drugs around me. And so I either wanted to put all of the drug dealers in jail because I knew a lot of them. Or part of me was like, I wanted to help young people not get involved in drugs. So there was always this part of me that I think had a calling to help people out. It wasn't until I went to school thinking I was going to become a DEA agent, majored in criminal justice, and had wonderful college professors who were like, you should really think about a law career instead, which meant nothing to me again, because I didn't know what lawyers did. And it wasn't until I returned to Rhode Island and was working with community-based organizations that I got a job at an international institute. It was called International Institute of Rhode Island, which is one of the oldest refugee-serving organizations in the in the country. There are some international institutes in many states across the nation. And that That was my first exposure to immigration as a law, as a policy. And that was where I had this aha moment of like, oh, these are the laws and policies that my family has been impacted by. I can make change at a greater level. At the time, I was doing outreach and education on the new laws um, from the 1986 law, particularly from a workers' rights perspective. And that was my entree into like, oh, and I got to meet some really great immigration lawyers and went to Northeastern University Law School in in Boston, which had a great cooperative education program. And that really allowed me, especially for someone who came from a low-income background, who didn't have that access or network into lawyers, it allowed me to experiment with different types of law and law settings. And I was really fortunate to have an internship in San Francisco at the Legal Aid Society Employment Law Center. And I really found for me, my calling was at this intersection of labor and immigration law, because that's what my parents were, immigrant workers. And I wanted to fight for people like them. After law school started the uh, Immigrant Workers' Rights Project at the Legal Aid Society in San Francisco, and then eventually started working with the National Immigration Law Center and got recruited. And so when I came to the National Immigration Law Center in 2000, I came to set up our labor and employment program and worked with unions and worker centers and was engaged in litigation and policy advocacy. Um, And then eventually, as the organization um, started evolving, the board created a program director role. I took that on and slowly started learning much more about management and fundraising and overseeing a broader set of work. And then I stepped into the executive director role in 2008. So 13 plus years later, I'm, I'm here I am. <laughs> well, you learn a lot about running an enterprise when you become executive director and along the way. What what have you learned about leadership and and management 
The first thing that I'll say, Nathaniel, was that I stepped into the executive director role with two very clear uh, goals. One was that I wanted to lead a multiracial, multiethnic organization. The immigrant rights world at that time in 2013 was still primarily white-led. Um, and it's so important that we have our white allies and people who have been committed to immigrants and refugees in our nation. And yet, I really felt that as an immigrant, one of the first immigrants in the country leading a national legal advocacy organization, that I had a certain responsibility to help shape the direction of our movement. And that as a Latina, as an immigrant from Colombia, I also didn't want this to be just about Latinos, right? The fact is that immigrants come from diverse background, Black immigrants, Asian Pacific Islander immigrants, Muslim, Arab, South Asian immigrants, many of whom are often invisible in the larger debate. And so that was one piece in terms of leadership that I really wanted to lead an organization that was leading and representative of the immigrant communities across our nation. And then second, I wanted to, to lead an organization that was striving to be a model workplace. I think in part, it's because of my workers' rights background. I um in my previous job at the Employment Law Center in San Francisco, we had a hotline in California where any worker in California could call this hotline to get support. And about 40% of the calls that we got were from nonprofit employees. And that always stuck with me, which was when I lead a national non- a nonprofit organization, I don't want to be one of those employers. I want us to model the, the justice that we're fighting for in the external world. And so that was a big part, right? Which is like, how do we lead in a way that allows staff to, to grow, to thrive, to feel valued, to feel respected, to have dignity and to feel that the work is meaningful, right? And that they are also getting a chance to grow and to have impact and that no one individual is, is indispensable, right? That this is about a collective effort that it takes all of us to have the impact that we're seeking in society. How big of an enterprise is it? How many people work there? We are now big. So when I took on the executive director role, we were a little bit under 20. I think we're like 17 or 18, $2 million budget. We are now about 75. And if you count consultants that we work with, we're closer to 100. And we have a $20 million operating budget. And then, you know, with reserves and everything, we're about a $30 million organization. So we've definitely have grown. And now with the pandemic, we have staff all over the country as well. We're mostly LA and DC are our two main offices. But um, I think the pandemic has absolutely changed that. So what are some of the things that you do to make it a model workplace? What kind of policies and procedures and culture? First and foremost, I would say that during the pandemic, I think we were tested as an organization, as most organizations did. And one of the first things that we said is we want to make sure that our staff are safe right, that they have the access to whatever protection they need, that their families need, and that they have the supports that they need. We have a lot of parents on staff who were just dramatically impacted by the pandemic in a way that I was as as somebody who doesn't have children. And so we as an organization have always had that flexibility. I think in part it's because I'm the youngest of 10. And so to me, like health and family are the most important thing. Like the work will always be there, but my expectation is not like, I actually don't believe in the work-life balance. I think that's an advertising uh, creation from the 1950s. I believe in work-life harmony, right? Which is sometimes we're going to be involved in litigation. We have external deadlines that require that we work really long hours because 
we're a nonprofit, so we are there for our communities, for our constituents. And so we have to work long hours sometimes. But then the harmony piece is then you take days off. Then you, we have flex days, right, where you have the opportunity to really try to, to and it, it takes a lot of discipline, right? It's a lot of individual agency as well of making sure and making sure that we have a culture where supervisors and management actually model that. That's been one of my journeys of like making sure that I'm modeling, taking time off and truly being off and not checking emails or asking for things while I'm supposed to be on vacation, making sure that we have very, very generous benefits. And we provide healthcare, 100% healthcare um, for everyone, 75% towards dependents. We um, have very generous paid time off. And then really hearing from staff about what they need. And so during the pandemic, we created this health resilience and wellness initiative where we have, for example, people coming in to do meditation with us, to join us on our staff calls where we're practicing and teaching tools of mindfulness and incorporating as much of that as possible into our, our day-to-day work. Like that, that, that resiliency, tapping into that and that self-care is as important as the work that we are doing to try to advance justice in our nation as well. When you lead an organization that grows from 20 to 75 plus, my experience is that you also have to grow personally along the way. It makes demands on you that you weren't prepared for because, you know, things change and it's a lot more people and more communication. And what have you done to grow yourself along that way? Do you have groups of peers that also run like organizations? Do you read things about it? How do you change yourself as you go? Yeah, that's such an excellent point. Absolutely. Look, this is, um, it's a growing journey for all of us. A couple of things that I often point to new executive directors is one of my big surprises was the board of directors. I was not prepared for what it meant to engage a board of directors and to be accountable to the set of people. I very early on learned that I needed to invest in board development and to create a board that actually was also representative of the work that we were doing and the, you know, racial, ethnic, gender diversity, but also making sure that they're not all immigration lawyers, right? That we had people that had diversity of skills and experience, et cetera. And part of that journey has been for me is having um, really learning to develop a strong shared leadership model with the board. And today, when I fast forward um, of my time with the organization, it's one of the parts of the organization that give me the greatest joy. Absolutely. Like I have a team of people on the board that I trust dearly, that I know are deeply committed to the organization, some of whom have been with the organization through previous executive directors. So that's one piece has been really learning a lot about what does it mean to have a healthy, strong, shared leadership model with a board of directors who, look, at the end of the day, they have the legal and fiduciary duty overseeing organizations. And so that was one piece. Second, I did not have an executive coach until a number of years into being an executive director. And I remember when I first learned, for example, there's an organization called the Management Center that focuses on nonprofits. When I first learned about the Management Center, my reaction was like, oh my goodness, like where have they been all my ED life? How did I not know about them? And I took it on as a, as a practice that every new executive director I learned, I was like, go to the management center, go take their trainings, get an executive coach from there, get some support because 
most of us in the nonprofit world go in because of the mission, because of the programmatic work that drives us, not because we want to become managers, right? That is just usually not the case uh, for most people. I happen to love the management. And again, I think it's because I come at it from a workers' rights lens. But the fact is that there's so much for us to grow and learn and that we will make mistakes. That is a guarantee is that we will make mistakes as new executive directors. And then the question is, how do we learn and grow from those? The last thing that I'll share is that it's a, a personal journey. I think one of the things that I learned throughout my my years as executive director was that some of my own personal trauma as a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, for example, was very much impacting my leadership style and my ability to embrace power or not. And I, that required me to go on my own healing journey to really get to a place where I healed from that trauma, did not let that define me and embrace my power, both as a leader, as an immigrant, um, but also as an organization. How do we as an institution also embrace our power and our standing in the world. And so that work that we all need to do individually, because it plays out in the workplace if we don't. And so there's both the, you know, I think part of what I say to staff a lot of times is like, we want to support you. Everybody has work to do at an individual level. Like we want to support you individually. We have great benefits. Go do that work. And institutionally, we will take the responsibility to make sure we're doing the work that the institution needs to do to have a culture and, and, and benefits and systems and policies that help us all move collectively together as well. I, I really admire that you would share all of that. It is not everybody in a leadership position who is willing to kind of show the introspection that it takes to lead in a progressive way, in an enlightened way. You know, you certainly see modeling of so many other leadership styles that are command and control and well, you could just look to the former president uh, uh, who, <laughs> as like the model of exactly everything you shouldn't do, right? That's right. One part of it also is sort of the vision and the clarity of about where you want to go. And I, I hear that from you. I hear like what you want to change in the country. If you've taken this from 20 to 75 people, where do you want it to be in five or 10 years if you're still there? Like what's, what's the future for the organization? Yeah. So interesting. You asked that Nathaniel, because I've actually announced that I am uh, leaving the organization. Um, yeah. You know, we, another thing we did as an, uh, as an organization is that the board and I started engaging in succession planning back in 2016, right? That is a healthy organization is you start planning. That's part of leadership development is stepping aside for other leaders to come forward. So we um, had been working on this, the board had been prepared for that. And then, you know, about a year ago, I decided, you know, it's time I'm ready to move on. I feel really great about what we collectively have achieved. I feel like the organization is on solid footing financially, culturally, and the impact that we have. And now it's time for a new executive director to come in. What I'll say as I think about the organization in particular as I'm leaving is there's this moment that we're in in the country, which is about democracy. And I truly believe that low-income immigrants have a critical role to shaping who we are and who we must become as America. I'm hoping that the next executive director of the organization will be someone, and this is what the board is looking for, someone who will help build on the work that we've done so far and that our strategic framework, which really puts forth a transformational vision for our country, that really is grounded in these three levers of change of continuing to achieve just 
progressive policies and laws at the federal, state, and local level, especially at the state and local level, where I do believe that is the long-term fight, right? That is where we build from the ground up. That is where we show that policymakers that are closest to the people can actually enact inclusive policies that helps everyone. So everyone at the state and local level can have the freedom to thrive and that it allows us to build power, to change hearts and minds, to tell a different story of who we are becoming as a country and who we must become as America to create the political conditions for the federal change that's needed. And then because the fight for democracy is so critical, right, is really leaning in to what does it mean to have um, to for immigrants to be able to get on that path to citizenship, for immigrants to be full participants in our democracy and helping to shape the future of our country. I feel like that is so much a part of where we need to go, both as an organization and as a country. And so I'm excited for the future of the organization under new leadership. What's next for you? Ah, what is next for me? I'm giving myself permission to pause first and foremost. And I am shocked at how shocked people are that I'm doing that. It's been really interesting to hear people's um, reactions of they've never thought of that before, but I'm giving myself permission to pause for a little while. I'm also writing a book. I'm about to get started on that. And uh, that will be an opportunity for me to share a little bit more about my vision for this country and, and the future, both again, about like where we've been, where we are now, but really truly where we must go in terms of becoming a nation of immigrants that reckons with our racialized founding of the nation and engages in some healing. I think our nation desperately needs to heal in order for us to move forward together. I immediately wonder whether there's the right place in the administration for you or whether you would run for office. What do you think of those possibilities? I'm always open to possibilities, but right now I'm very clear <laughs> that I'm giving myself some permission to pause and do some writing and uh, hopefully get to visit and spend some time with family in Colombia. Well, perhaps you can come back and talk about the book after you get it out. I, I would love to. I would love that. Yes. <laughs> well, cool. Is there a question that I didn't ask that I should have? No, I mean, I think, you know, what I'll say, Nathaniel, is that, um, so first, thank you for this opportunity. I think having the opportunity to engage in these robust conversations are really important um, at a time in our nation that feels so polarized. And I, I just think that part of the path forward on immigrants and immigration is also reconnecting for people in our country to reconnect to their immigrant roots and to their immigrant story. And so there's something about that that I, I really want to help um, the country get to that place where folks can reconnect to, you know, what were the, how did their families come? What were the laws and policies at that time? There's so much misinformation and misunderstanding of our immigration laws and policies, and that's part of the path forward. Well, it's really an honor to talk to you uh, today. Anything else you want to say? Gracias. Just deep <laughs> gratitude for you as well. <laughs> Take good care. <laughs> Thank you. That was Marielena Incapia. Marielena is at nilc.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.